You're listening to our Great Divorce Podcasts, where we walk through one of C.S. Lewis's greatest works and discuss practically what it means for our lives today. This podcast was produced by St. Andrew in Plano, Texas. The theme song you're hearing is Shadow to Sunlight by Micah Peacock. For more information about our church and the different ministries we provide, or to find other podcasts we have produced, we invite you to visit standrewumc.org or join us for worship on Sunday mornings. Well, Forrest, we are continuing in this epic journey. I was actually reading the back of my book, which is a timeless novel about a bus ride from hell to heaven. And today... Sounds like speed. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we're diving into chapter seven of The Great Divorce. This is where we start to get even more characters. The, The book starts to move faster, I think, at this point. At least when I read it, this is the part where you just you kind of get a better sense of what's happening. And so you start to understand it. Although the character that is introduced in chapter seven tries to make things more complicated. There's this division between hell and heaven. And here we have this character who shows up and asks, is it actually a real choice? Is it actually possible for us to reach heaven? He starts and there's a guy, and I like the description of this guy that we have. So he's walking along and he hears a voice say, think of going back. I turned and saw a tall ghost standing with its back against a tree, chewing a ghostly cherub. It was that of a lean, hard-bitten man with gray hair and gruff, but not an uneducated voice. The kind of man I have always instinctively felt to be reliable. I love that description because we can all have in our heads this sense of wizened, skeptical people that we're like, eh, if he says it. If he questions it, maybe it's not real. If he believes it, maybe it is. We all have those people in our lives. And I think this chapter is dedicated to maybe they're not always right. What's interesting, it's every time Lewis says something like that, it seems he's taking the world's view of it. It's like the whole time he's taking the world's view of what we think instinctively that seems reliable to us. And then it always kind of plays out a little different. It's like the Warren G. Harding effect. Malcolm Gladwell has a whole description about how literally we had a president of the United States that was chosen because he looked like a president, not because he was actually good. This is that kind of thing. This is like, well, he had the presidential voice. He had the gray hair. That's what a president ought to look like. And maybe that's not actually the best president. But Uh, you could say this girl or guy looks like what a president should look like. And everybody's kind of like, yeah, I can picture what that is. It's who you would cast but maybe that's not the right answer. So he continues and there's this back and forth between them where it's sometimes difficult to understand who's saying what when you're reading it. But primarily this hard bitten man with gray hair and a gruff, but not uneducated voice is pitching the idea that everything that you've heard is false, that there's never a real choice. So he says, are you going anywhere? Are you going back? You staying? He says, I don't know. What are you doing? He goes, yeah, I guess I've seen all there is about to see. You don't think of staying? That's all propaganda, it said. 
For the record, you need to pay attention anytime Lewis in this book says it instead of he or she, because they've kind of turned a corner at that point in time to being something less than a person and more just a viewpoint. You'll hear this more in chapter nine when they talk about a grumble versus a grumbler. There's this point where you stop actually having your own view and you just become your view. It's like you dehumanize yourself to some extent. It says, of course, there was never any question of our staying. You can't eat the fruit, you can't drink the water, and it takes you all your time to walk on the grass. That idea of staying is only an advertisement stunt. Basically, up until this point, you see Greytown, and then you see heaven, and it's a self-evident point that the solid place is good, Greytown is bad, and of course that's the right way. And here comes this good-looking, gruff voice, not uneducated, but earthly, going, are you sure you can stay? How do you even know? It's like this tempting question. I actually, it sounds to me like what the serpent sounded like in Genesis 3, right? Well, you aren't certainly going to die, the serpent said to Eve. How do you know? Maybe God just didn't want you to be like him. It's that kind of voice. Literally, it's the enticing, gravelly, sexy voice of skepticism for what God is offering you. Kind of makes sense. It does. Well, there are a lot of points in here where I'm like, yeah, it's pretty true. Like he ends up describing all the places he'd been and it's all run by the same establishment. Continuing to build his expertise, you That's know, right. his, his authority. His he's, authority. He's been everywhere. He's I've been seen to all, all these places. I've been to the Taj Mahal. I've been to Niagara Falls. Actually, it reminds me when my wife and I went to Europe and every town you had people on the street selling the same stuff. And we realized it didn't matter what town you were in. It wasn't like the street vendors in Venice sold anything different than Paris. It was all run by the same man. There's just this healthy skepticism that you realize cheap commodities have taken over the world. And it doesn't matter whether you're at the Eiffel Tower or at the Taj Mahal. The world is actually cheaper than we think it is. You're like, well, maybe India is going to be different or China. And it's all the same. That's kind of his whole pitch. This is the way he frames it. He goes, it's just a trap for tourists. I've been pretty well everywhere. Niagara Falls, the pyramids, Salt Lake City, the Taj Mahal. And it says they're all advertisement stunts, all run by the same people. Now, I would agree with some of the places I'd been, but have you ever been to Niagara Falls? I haven't. Oh, okay. So it's like, have you ever been to the Grand Canyon? Yes. Okay. You know how you go to the Grand Canyon? The same thing's true for Niagara Falls. And you think I've been told, like you go to all these famous places and you're like, that's eh, not as great as you thought it was. The Niagara Falls and the Grand Canyon are the two places that you can't oversell. They're just so massive that I think when I read this the first time, Actually, Niagara Falls is pretty cool. You can't commodify that much water coming over the waterfall. There's some bit of it where had he just stuck with, I don't know, art museums. I've been to the Louvre. I've been to this. You're like, eh, you know, it's all art. I don't know. My aunt's an art director and probably hated that comment. But, but I think that like there are things in the world that are better than that. But you can easily see how you can just go, why would I go somewhere else? It's all the same. And you just kind of flatten all the good things that exist. It's not ups and downs. It's all just mediocre advertising junk. I think we all also know people that approach the world like this. <laughs> that, that You're like, huh, they just really sucked all the wind out of what I thought that could be. 
Well, it's like the person who has been everywhere and is like, oh, don't go to Venice. It stinks. Yeah, you're like, we just spent all year saving up for the trip to, <laughs> to Venice. But there are canals. Ah, they're just streets with water. Yeah, what do you yeah. want? You've seen one street. You've seen them all. <laughs> I also think there's that tendency in each of us. One, we know people for whom that's just who they are. But also, there's a part of us that once you've been a lot of places, you're like, ah, it's all the same. You it's lose all the perspective. whatever. Yeah. It's like the people that travel. I've only traveled for my job once in my life is when I worked for Zoe Ministry and I traveled to Africa and all over the US doing fundraising stuff. And I'd always wanted to travel until I traveled professionally. And then I just wanted to stay put. And people are like, well, how great is it to stay in hotels? Now, first of all, it was a nonprofit, so my hotels weren't all that great. But regardless, you're like, I hate living out of a suitcase. You can easily dismiss what other people think is cool yeah. And you just kind of, that becomes your normal. Anyway, I think this guy is one of those guys for whom he's not wrong that there's a lot of crazy in the world. There's a lot of mediocre in the world. That There's a lot of places where it is all propaganda. But he went to the point where he said, even heaven is like that. And that's why I like the Niagara Falls reference is the Niagara Falls reference is so false to me because like, that's an amazing thing. Getting there now, doing the boat or whatever, you can navigate that. Like, that might be as cool or not or whatever, but the thing itself is pretty amazing. And part of what I think heaven is supposed to be here, it is pretty amazing. What's really funny is he also continues to say that hell isn't even that bad. So it's not just that Niagara Falls isn't that great or that heaven isn't uh, all it's cracked up to be. It's actually that hell isn't as bad as he thought it would be either. And so here's his phrase. He goes, and you've lived down there in the town for some time. And what they call hell? Yep, it's a flop too. They lead you to expect red fire and devils and all sorts of interesting people sizzling on grids, Henry VIII and all that. But when you get there, it's just like any other town. It's really funny that what this mentality puts is it kind of makes straight mountains and valleys. Like the good isn't actually that good and the bad isn't actually that bad. But that's not really a great place to live either because Greytown actually stunk according to the rules, according to the system, but he thought it'd be worse. And I, I like this guy because he raises a set of questions in all of us of, is all of this actually just a lie? I think things are particularly true for church and life and faith and hope because there are people who I think come and they're like, I tried church. Wasn't that great? I mean, you know, sanctified songs. I didn't like not going to church. Wasn't that great? because they didn't give either of them the right angle or didn't have the right lens to view it with, everything became just kind of meh, mediocre, as opposed to like enjoying the highs and rejecting the lows. There's that idea that if you stay here long enough, you'll get solider, which is grow acclimatized. It reminded me of, um, I worked in Colorado in the summers in college. I was a backpacking guide and that acclimatized comment made me think back. We had, if you've been to the mountains, you realize, you know, you just show up from sea level, you're going to have headaches and all these things. It takes a little while to get used to that, that altitude. And I was thinking we had this group come from New Orleans one time and they, sh they showed up and they, they had all been practicing walking around, walking upstairs in New Orleans with coffee straws in their mouth to practice breathing at what it was going to be like at altitude. But it was funny because like they, they were, were like breathing only through the coffee straw. Yes. Like, yes. That's hilarious. That's what they were practicing because that's what it was going to feel like when they were up in the mountains hiking. And that Did was, that help? No. But it was just funny <laughs> that. But what's funny is 
you can think about it and prep for it, but when you until you actually get there, you can't get acclimated. Like you can't your body has to experience it for you to actually do it. You can't make it up. Well, and you can't go halfway either, right? It's interesting walking upstairs with a coffee straw in your mouth. I can't believe that's a real story. People are like, well, that's what it's going to be like. And it's nowhere close to what it is. But I think that's how people try faith. Yeah. Where they're like, well, I'm not going to go all the way. I'm not going to go to Colorado and experience the beautiful vistas and just dive into it. I'm going to just try my really mediocre version of going up indoor stairways with a coffee straw in my mouth and that that's the analogy for it. However, I think that's how a lot of people do marriage too. Well, I'm going to try this thing. I don't know if I'm going to commit fully. Or that's maybe why I think people struggle to actually get married. They're just like, let's just try this thing out for a little while. But I really think living together is very different than being married. Those are different things where you actually need to go all in. You can't just stay aloof from it and then reject it. In fact, he describes that marriage thing here. He says, I know all about that acclimatized thing. It's the same old lie. People have been telling me that sort of lying thing all my life. They told me in the nursery that if I were good, I'd be happy. They told me at school that Latin would get easier as I went on. After I'd been married a month, some fool was telling me there were always some difficulties at first, but with tact and patience, I'd soon settle down and like it. The truth is, he was wrong on all those. If you find a way of being good, you will actually be happy. That that's actually what God meant when he said good. Or if you do Latin, it does get easier as you go on. But if you quit early, you don't actually get that benefit. If you stay an arm's distance from it rather than actually diving in, you're never going to actually get the benefits of it. Like New Orleans coffee straws. I can't believe they actually try to do that. But that is the moral equivalent to what we do all the time. Yeah. The whole end of here is one that I think is something that has resonated with me for a long time when I didn't like coffee. <laughs> so for a long time, I hated coffee. I really did. I rejected it. I thought it was nasty. I liked the smell of it, like when you walk into a coffee shop, but yeah. I never drank coffee. People always used to tell me, well, if you drink enough of it, it's going to become good. And I mocked that. I didn't drink coffee till I was in my 30s. And finally, one 4th of July, I decided I'm going to try the coffee. And I didn't just try one sip and put it away like I always had, which is, I think, how people try faith or life or marriage or whatever, where you're like, eh, I'll you, try it you on. make the gross face before you even put it to your mouth? That's like, exactly what yeah. it is. You and already made your mind up. And you finally, like, I decided I'm going to drink the whole cup. And you know what? I liked the cup. That was the first cup of coffee I had ever liked. I did the same thing with olives. You did the same thing with olives? You decided you wanted to like olives, and so you just ate a ton of them? My buddy told me he did this one year. And so for a New Year's resolution one year, I said, this year I'm going to get to like olives. And I hated them. I hated the texture. I hated everything about them. And I said, okay, every time I'm around olives this year, I'm going to have to try an olive. And about three months in, oh, love them. Well, what's now really I love them. Like every chance I get, I'll eat. I mocked the idea that you could get acclimatized to something and that it was worth that effort. My whole like bit about coffee is if you have to actually get acclimatized to it, if you actually have to like force yourself to drink it, to like it, is it worth it? And on the other side of drinking coffee, absolutely. That was one of the best decisions I ever made was to get to like coffee. I <laughs> wish I'd started liking it earlier because it's such a good habit for me. I like waking up with the coffee. I like the routine with my wife. 
And the truth is it was worth it. Like it was worth it. Not because the coffee was bad, because it was so good. I needed to actually change my taste buds to appreciate the goodness of what it was. The problem wasn't with the coffee. The problem was with me. And this guy is sitting here and he's mocking the idea that you would ever have to get acclimatized to anything. Like, well, that's just the lie they tell you. It's like the problem with actually wanting to serve your spouse in marriage is not your spouse or not serving your spouse. It actually is you need to actually learn how to want it. Same thing's true with love and generosity and kindness and faith and hope and literally all the good things in the world. They don't come naturally to you. And the problem is not with love, faith, hope, life, marriage, whatever. The problem's with you, with your taste buds, with your direction, with your framework in it. And honestly, saying as this guy does, I don't want to actually get there. Like they should just make it automatically attuned to my taste buds. Well, that would be fine if your taste buds were good. But what if your taste buds are wrong and you don't like something that is fantastic? It's like when my kids turn down good food. There are times where I've got kids and all they want is mac and cheese and I've got something stupendous right in front of them and they just want their corn dogs and mac and cheese, whatever. And you're like, no, no, no. The problem is not with what I'm offering you. The problem is your taste buds don't appreciate what's actually good in the world. And so we have to train your taste know. buds to be better. Corn dog and mac and cheese. Not well, it bad. depends on the corn dog and mac and cheese, Forrest. I do think it's funny. His challenge to you, the wise grizzled man about the eggs. I thought it was a really, <laughs> really good challenge. And it made me laugh because uh, in the page before that, it says when he's talking about all these things that the guy's telling him, he says, this account of the matter struck me as uncomfortably plausible. So I said nothing. I think that's most of these things. Like when people, and with your faith too, like people throw out things at you that you don't quite understand and it creates questions. And it really does make you uncomfortable. You think this is uncomfortably plausible. It's so plausible that it makes you be quiet. Even if you think, but I don't want to live that way. I don't want to live where there's no good or no bad. I don't want to live that way. That pitch is so tempting. It got Eve, right? That pitch is so tempting that Eve was in paradise and went, yeah, maybe, maybe this whole thing's a lie. And yet it isn't. That's what we're going to get into in the next chapters is what seems plausible, what seems like the Warren G. Harding strategy of the thing that looks like you think it ought to, like that's what wisdom looks like, is actually just another lie of the world. I do like the logic at the very end of this chapter where the guy says, well, I'm going now. You're coming with me. And he says, well, there doesn't seem to be much point in going anywhere on your show. And like, he, he's like, well, I mean, you just like, where are you going? That's With your lens, there's nowhere to yes. go. Here's what I want to end this chapter with, this episode with. It says, what would you say if you went to a hotel where the eggs were all bad and when you complained to the boss, instead of apologizing and changing his dairy man, he just told you that if you tried, you'd get to like bad eggs in time. That's not actually what's being presented here. He just assumes every egg is bad. But in fact, what he's getting is the golden egg. What he's getting is actually heaven. And he is looking at heaven and saying, oh, this is just crap. This is just horrible. In fact, in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, the last battle, they end up in heaven. These dwarves end up in heaven and they're actually eating good food, but they think they're eating horse manure. And no amount of trying to convince them that actually this is good could convince them. They're in heaven, but their taste buds and their eyes have been so shifted and so broken. They can't even see 
what's good right in front of them. And to me, that's the challenge of this chapter is where are places in our lives where we've given up on hope, given up on goodness, given up on the good things in the world and have decided that there's actually no goodness, no truth, no beauty, no nothing. And it just seems so plausible to give up on it. But maybe there's actually is truth and goodness and beauty. And would you be really willing to give that up just because you aren't willing to take a chance? Got no place, but I know just why I'm here. Lift me out of the ways, keep me steady in the face of fear. I wanna swim in the deepest ocean. I wanna feel heaven come alive. Ah!